0: Praise team and choir, thank you for leading us in our singing and what incredible truths that we have sung and reminded ourselves of this morning. Uh, What what great testimony uh, as a church to proclaim the gospel and to agree together that our hope is found in Christ alone, amen? Please turn your Bibles to Acts in chapter 21, if you will, Acts chapter 21. Today we're gonna to be in Acts chapter 21, verse 17 through chapter 22 and verse 29. So we'll be making our way through that text. Uh, just uh, item of housekeeping, Tim Sperduto, you're in here somewhere, where are you? Tim, stand up for us, Tim. All right, Tim, our next discipleship pastor. drove in yesterday drove all, all day yesterday and his family will be coming uh, at the end of next week they'll they'll arrive next Sunday night as they wait for the movers to come get all their stuff tim's first official day in the office is tomorrow and we will do a formal introduction and welcome after his whole family is here but that won't be till the middle of the month on a sunday so we're so glad you're here he was with us in the first service he's here all day and Uh, Many of you have been able to connect with him already. I know I've seen him talking to a lot of people, and that's a wonderful thing. We're so excited for you to start your ministry here, and for the team that God is assembling in our church, so grateful to God for that. All right, Acts chapter 21 today. We're looking at this passage under the title, Navigating High Stress Situations. And over the course of the past few weeks, I've been reading some articles that deal with Uh, stress. Like, how do we deal with stress in our lives? In fact, one of the articles that I read titled, How to Deal with Stressful Situations, offered several strategies on how to cope or how to navigate in these kind of difficult situations. The lady who wrote the article lists several things. I won't list everything, but I've identified a handful of things that really sum up what she's getting at. The first thing she writes is in high stress situations, we should identify the source of our stress. Makes sense, right? We should know what it is actually that is causing us stress. That seems helpful. The second thing she says is have the right attitude. Now. That sounds good, but honestly, she doesn't even identify the attitude that we're supposed to have. She just says, have the right attitude. The third, examine your thought patterns. And what she means, if you read the article, she's really getting at, don't focus on the negative things. Don't focus on the negatives. The fourth thing, practice positive self-talk. This is kinda like, in your own heart, in your own mind, have yourself a pep rally, right? I can do it, I'm gonna get through this, I'm gonna be okay, Where everything's gonna be all right. Fifth thing, eliminate things that cause you stress or make changes in your life. So I kind of started thinking, what does that mean? I mean, eliminate the things that cause us stress or make changes. In fact, she goes on to say, have a new life goal, have a new life purpose. To me, that seems pretty unrealistic. Seems pretty unreasonable that we can just kind of change everything in that moment or eliminate everything that causes us stress. But it's a strategy she suggests. Last thing she suggests is practice self-care. In other words, reward yourself. Take time for yourself. Prioritize your own needs. And the truth is this, friends. If you were to look, uh, do a Google search, and you were to pull up how to deal with stress in your life, you would find numerous lists that include various things just like this. Things that that offer you suggestions that maybe some of them are helpful, maybe some of them are kind of unrealistic, but what is noticeably absent from the way the world wants to handle stress is any recognition of who our God is. Any recognition of uh, seeking Him in prayer. Any recognition of calling out to Him for help and grace and remembering His character. All of these would be completely foreign to any secular or worldly aspect of trying to get through stressful situations. Now, in fact, based on the fact that Paul failed to incorporate any of these truths or any of these strategies, we might expect that he was an utter failure when it came to high stress situations. Of course, we'd be wrong. I mean, other than Jesus in the New Testament, there's probably not another character, another person who has dealt with more difficult situations than the Apostle Paul. He wasn't a failure when he dealt with stressful situations. In fact, he, he moved through them with grace and with steadfastness. Why? Because he focused on who the, our God is. Because he regularly reminded himself of the character, of the goodness, of the wisdom, of the grace of our God. Now today, as we make our way through this passage, we're gonna see Paul navigate what is a stressful situation, what amounts to an incredibly stressful situation, and we're gonna see the way in which he goes about it. We'll see, I think, at least three things this morning. So if you will, please stand. We're gonna honor the reading of the word of our God. Acts chapter 21, we're gonna begin with verse 17 through 26. Luke writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray together. Lord, as we begin this journey through this text, we're asking for your grace and your wisdom to help us to understand and to make appropriate application into our lives lives. Lord, we know that your word is given not just for information, but for transformation. And today we need your spirit to transform us and to teach us. Lord, these words, may they not just be the words of a man, but may they be your words to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So Paul has been approaching Jerusalem for some time now. And I would imagine that for Paul, there was some sense of apprehension, right? He's going to Jerusalem, but everyone there has told him, don't go, don't, don't go. He's coming to multiple people all along the way. And they're all like, hey, don't go there. Nothing's good going to happen there when you get there. So I would imagine, even though Paul was steadfast, even though Paul was believing he was following the Holy Spirit to get there, there must have been just a little hitch or a little apprehension in his own heart as he approached Jerusalem. So Luke, as we saw last week, picked up the entrance into Jerusalem in verses 15 and 16, but then in verse 17, Luke focuses attention on how he was initially received. And I think as we look through this passage, we're going to see several ways that Paul sought to navigate what was a highly stressful situation. And The first way he did so was by prioritizing gospel unity. Paul was prioritizing gospel unity. Let's be clear. I'm not talking about prioritizing just getting along. I'm not talking about prioritizing just not rocking the boat. I'm not talking about prioritizing just ignoring real differences that are there just so we can kind of say we're okay. I'm talking about making sure that we understand that in Christ we are together, right? We may not worship in the same church family as other people because of some doctrinal differences that we have, but at the end of the day, those differences, as long as they are still faithful to the gospel, don't make us enemies and should not tear us apart, right? So when I'm talking about gospel unity, I'm talking about believing the same things when it comes to who God is, the same things about uh, what makes us connected to God, right? Uh, about ourselves, about Christ, about what the way to salvation is. In a world that seeks to divide us among any number of things, right? Socioeconomic things, demographic things, racial things, other cultural things. Christians need to celebrate the unity, the gospel unity that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, again, I'm not saying that we contradict gospel convictions, but I am saying that we are gracious to one another in our understanding, and we are understanding when it comes to differences. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul exhorts Christians to do everything they can as long as it depends on them to live peaceably with everyone, right? Believers, unbelievers, just live peaceably with everyone. So Paul shows up in Jerusalem, right? And remember, he had hoped to be there by Pentecost. Why? Likely to join the festivities of this Jewish feast. And initially, he is met with much favor. That's what we see there in verse 17 as we go through the first half of verse 20, right? He's met with a warm reception. He's telling the the church leaders of the church there in Jerusalem about all the things that God has done through him and through his associates um, in the Gentile world. And they rejoice, they glorify God, right? They're they're worshiping God because of how God has used Paul and his missionary friends in this setting. It's it's an amazing thing. And like they're they're going down the interstate in fifth gear and then all of a sudden, it's like they pull it back in a second and did you notice that big transition there in verse 20? I mean, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, 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 what just happened? You were just glorifying God, but now there is a transition. Let's look at verse 20 again. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to walk in circumcision, Uh, Not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? So they're rejoicing about God's work through Paul and his friends among the Gentile world. But now they transition and it's like everything's coming to a screeching halt. That's great there, we're praising God for that, but now we have an issue here because there are thousands, that's important, that's significant. In Jerusalem, there are thousands of Jews who have believed in Jesus, who have trusted in Jesus, who are following Jesus, and they're zealous for the law. They're zealous for the customs and the traditions of the law. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us the church in Jerusalem is booming, but they're still following some of the customs and the traditions of the law. What do we make of that? So for some of us, this sounds really odd, doesn't it? Well, wait a minute. They're Christians now. Why are they still holding to this? Well, we have to be careful here. They weren't necessarily holding to it in a sense of a salvific significance way. But they had grown up and this was their culture, this was their life, right? Circumcision and the festivals and the feast, it was just part of who they were. It was part of their identity as Jews and they were still following those things. Yes, in Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile is under the law in order to be made right with God. But for the believing Jew, the relationship to the law seems here to be a bit complicated. I mean, consider Paul himself. He understood that there is no salvation in the law because no one obeys the law perfectly, right? We've all fallen short. We're all sinners. So we don't, we don't make ourselves right with God by our own obedience to the law. That is very clear. But also, he didn't totally disregard all the customs and the traditions of the law or the Jewish calendar, right? Consider that he wanted to be in Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. Why? Well, that was a big deal. That was a big deal with the Jews. Not only that, he decided to have Timothy, his missionary associate, circumcised. Not because he thought it would add any salvific influence to Timothy's life, but because it would open up doors for Timothy to serve among the Jews. But not only that, back in Acts chapter 18 and verse 18, we learned that Paul was under a vow, very likely the Nazarite vow, something that came out of Judaism, something that came out of the Mosaic law. Paul was under this voluntary vow to refrain from some things, to dedicate himself more fully to God. Even as a Christian, he was doing something like this. The same guy who declared that he was free from the law doesn't see it wrong to practice certain aspects of the law in some regards. Why? Because he's understanding that his se- salvation is secure in Christ alone and not by doing these other things. In his commentary on the book of Acts, uh, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Albert Moeller, writes While there is no salvation in the law because we can't keep it, nothing forbids the Jews from following its customs. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. Didn't Paul write about this into some of the churches? Well, let's think about the the letter he wrote to the church in Galatia. In Galatia, Paul said, look, what are you guys doing? Haven't been saved by grace? Are you now trying to find perfection by your obedience to the law? So what happened in Galatia? Well, Paul was there. They planted a church. People came to Christ. And then Paul left. And after Paul left, these group of people called the Judaizers would have come into the church and they would have tried to undo the things that Paul was teaching. Paul would say that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, right? We're saved by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, not because we follow the law. But the Judaizers were saying, yeah, yeah, Gentiles, listen, if you really want to be saved, believe in Christ and then start obeying the law. So, they would add this dimension of law abiding in order to be saved, in order to be made right with God. That was an issue. That was an issue in many of these Gentile churches away, but that's not the same issue that we're dealing with here in Jerusalem and what prompted the leadership of the church in Jerusalem to have this conversation with Paul. The issue here was, there were rumors circling around that Paul was going into into the world, into the Gentile world, and the Jews who lived outside of Palestine telling them, oh, forget about Moses. It doesn't matter, you don't have to do any of that. It doesn't matter anymore. Now, We've got to be careful here how we go forward. Number one, that's not what Paul was saying. But number two, what's happening in Jerusalem is now the Jews are offended in a sense, because the, the believing Jews, not the Gentiles, the believing Jews are offended because they don't know what to make of the rumors they're hearing. What was Paul telling the people? Well, we read about it everywhere he went, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is is the one, the long-expected son of David, that he fulfilled the law on their behalf and that salvation is found through him and not through obedience to the Mosaic law, only through faith in Jesus and his obedience. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach writes, Paul likely didn't promote Jewish non-observance to the law, but he clearly insisted on that the Gentiles are free of the law. Of course, for the Gentile, this is clear based on Acts 15, which we read here in a summary statement just a moment ago, right? Paul said, no, no, the Gentiles, the the church agreed, consistent with doctrine. The the Gentiles don't have to start living like Jews in order to be saved. They're saved as we would be by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus. So in light of the rumors that had been circulating, the leadership of the church devises this plan. It was a plan aimed to present Paul as someone who is sympathetic to the law, not someone who is completely against the law. So there's these men who were under this vow, very likely a Nazarite vow, just a few years before this, Paul was probably under the same vow. And he says, look, to show that you're not against the law in every way, that you're sympathetic to it, Go with them and purify yourself and pay for them to have their heads shaved and pay for them for their sacrifices. And that will show all the believing Jews here that they don't don't have to believe the rumors that they are hearing about you. Now, when we look at this text, it is very true that some people accuse Paul of being a hypocrite here. They say Paul was just a hypocrite. He shouldn't have done any of that. You know, Paul agrees to it. He obliges to it. He does all this stuff, but he shouldn't have. He's not under the law anymore. He doesn't need to do this anymore. Many people say that the the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, they were weak. They should have never asked this. This shouldn't even be part of the conversation here. But frankly, friends, Paul has already voiced his opinion on the matter. He's, a voice, his opinion, he's voiced his opinion on these matters already. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul clearly declares that while he is free in Christ, because he's motivated by the gospel, he willingly forgoes his quote rights and then seeks to win people to Christ at all cost. Let me read for you in 1 Corinthians 9. Beginning in verse 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew. Now, Paul was already a Jew, so what does it mean he became as a Jew? Well, I think he's about to explain it in order to induce. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, to the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not outside God, like the the big law, like the moral law, not, not outside that, but as one under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Share with them in its blessings, unity, togetherness. Paul would say I'm free from the... From the constraints of the law, but because I love the gospel and I love gospel unity, I will prioritize in my, li- in my life. It will move me. It'll cause me to make decisions that I may or may not otherwise have made. Here's the point. In Christ, we're not bound to the Mosaic law. Not Jews, not Gentiles. We're free. Even still, in this text, And what we see in Paul's practice indicates that it is not wrong or sinful for a Jew to still follow the customs of the law, as long as there is no salvific significance attached to that following of the law. Does that make sense? You want to practice? You want to enjoy this feast? You want to observe this day? Fine. As long as, it's not, as long as you're not doing it because you think it aids your salvation or makes you more right with God. Friends, if Paul would have thought otherwise, then he would not have made himself as one under the law so he could reach those who were under the law. If it was sinful, if it was wrong, he wouldn't have done that. But that's what we see here from him. So what does this have to do with navigating stressful situations? Well, I'm glad you asked. One aspect of God's grace in our lives is the church family. It's how we stay connected to one another. It's the fellowship of believers. It's the love and the support and the encouragement that we draw from one another as we encourage others in Christ, as we remind others and as we are reminded by others of God's grace and promises. When we live in unity and connection, we are better equipped to face the challenges that the world presents to us. We're better prepared to endure the trials that come our way because of the practical love and the support that we get from others. I have heard this multiple times. Perhaps you've heard this multiple times too. Christians in other areas, maybe other areas of the country, maybe other areas of the world will testify that just knowing that you know our situation, that you're praying for us, it makes all the difference in the world to know that we're not alone, but that you care but that you're praying, that you support us. So church, let's be that for one another. Let's prioritize gospel unity as we navigate through high stress situations. Secondly, let's rest in God's providence. Let's rest in God's providence. So let's look at verses 27 through 35. That's kind of the next little picture we see here. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, now we've heard the Jews from Asia along the way, right? The Jews in Asia are kind of like a thorn in the flesh of Paul. So the Jews of Asia, now they're in Jerusalem, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, "Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple." Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut and as they were seeking to And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Now, friends, in high stress situations, which this clearly is, we have to rest in God's providence. I mean, things are happening fast here. I mean, all of a sudden, it this turns chaotic. It turns dangerous. It may be Paul's willingness to appease the Jewish believers in the way that the church leadership encouraged to do. Maybe that helped the church with the believing Jews, but not with the unbelieving Jews, and they didn't care. They just wanted Paul dead. So the Jews from Asia, those who have caused these hardships, those who have plotted against them before, they now accuse Paul of teaching against the people, teaching against the law, teaching against the temple, and then even breaking the law by bringing a Gentile into the holy places of the temple. And this, of course, riles up a crowd and everyone's upset. And I mean, as the text read, Paul was at risk of dying here. Like, this is serious. So serious. The commotion, the Roman Tribune gets word of it and sends soldiers, centurions. Centurions command an army of 100 people, a group of 100 people. Could have been 200 people soldiers that come and, in a sense, rescue Paul. However, don't think that he was trying to rescue Paul. He was trying to save himself, the tribune, because he knew that he didn't want to deal with the uproar that was there. Well, not many of us have been in such situation like that, maybe not that stressful. But what we see from Paul is that he is resting in God's providence. That's what brought him to Jerusalem in the first place. He's trusting in God. He is resting in God's providence, his care for him and for the situation, right? That's the whole reason why he was there in the first place. Even when everyone said, don't go, he said, no, no, this is where God's leading me. I'm trusting here. Trusting in God's care. And by the way, in God's providence, people who are not Paul's friends and people who do not worship the one true and living God rescue Paul. So the question is, how is it that we trust or rest in God's providence? Well, it starts with knowing who God is. It starts with knowing his character. It starts in understanding that, that he is sovereign and that he is good. It includes trusting in the fact that God uses all things for our good. Whatever we face in life, God is using it for our good. He's for us. He's not against us. It's banking on the fact that God is wise. It's banking on the on the fact that God is loving. On the fact that since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that he will continue to work on our behalf. Look, this doesn't mean that nothing bad happens in our lives. This doesn't mean that life's never gonna be difficult. This doesn't mean that we're never going to face trials or, or or tests, no. But it does mean that in the pain, that in the difficulty, God is working for your joy, and He's working for your good, and He will not forsake you. But He will ultimately bring you home. Look, here's the fact: sometimes God's providence is hard. If we believe that God is sovereign, that God is sovereignly caring for his creation, if we believe that he is providentially working our life, sometimes the situations in our life are difficult. The Puritans wrote about this. They talked about the bitterness of God's providence. Had a friend talked with a few weeks ago on the phone, a pastor friend, who, uh, whose wife is facing a very serious illness. And as the pastor spoke on the phone, he just wept and said, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't, I don't know that she's gonna make it. And he said, I'm just trying to trust God and and I, I trust his providence. And even though his providence is hard right now, I'm looking to his promises. I'm looking to the hope that he gives. Friends, this is the book of Ruth. Bitter providence. Naomi loses her husband, loses her two sons, but but Ruth accompanies her back to Bethlehem. And in God's providence, God Cares for the family, but more than the family cares for the entire people of Israel. Why? Because Boaz and Ruth Mary and Boaz fathered Obed and Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David, King David, the one whom God made a promise that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever and ever. King Jesus. God's providence at times is bitter and it's tough, but we trust God's promises throughout, and we rest in him. It's faith. It's trusting in God's goodness, even when it doesn't feel like it. So if we're gonna navigate through high stress situations, then we rest in God's providence. (laughs) Lastly, be faithful to your calling. Be faithful to your calling. So in verses 37 through chapter 22 and verse 29, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview and then I'm going to read different sections of it. Paul is going to get permission to speak to the riotous crowd, the crowd that wants to kill him, and then he's going to tell them about his life before Christ, and then he's going to tell them about his conversion experience, and then he's going to talk to them a little bit about his life after Christ, but more specifically his, uh, his commissioning, Right, what God has commissioned him to do. And what we're going to see is that in this high-stress situation, Paul was faithful to his calling. Now, there's a lot to see. There's a lot going on, and we can't cover everything. But let's just begin there in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune said, do you speak Greek or do you know Greek? Are you not then the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. So the tribune is thinking, oh, okay, this guy is Greek. He speaks Greek. This must be who he is. Well, wrong person. Paul says, no, no, I'm a Jew. I just want to speak to the people. So now he's going to speak to the people, and he speaks to the people. In Hebrew now, 22, verse 1, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I know that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicily, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, right? So everyone knew who Gamaliel was, a leading Pharisee. Everyone knew who he was. In fact, a lot of these people may have recognized Paul from his days living as a Pharisee, persecuting the church. And that's what he goes on to say here. He says, look, this is what I was doing. I was persecuting Christians. I was going out, I was hunting them down. In fact, when, 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 when christians were being persecuted when they were being stoned i was there giving my approval in fact i was on my way to damascus the high priest gave me the papers and i went to damascus so i could go get some some christians some people who followed the way so i could bring them back and imprison them and persecute them and then something happened verse six and as I on my way, I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And I said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So you know the story, he gets up, he's led into Damascus, he's supposed to find a guy named, or a guy named Ananias is supposed to come to him, God approaches Ananias, goes to him, Paul, Saul, at that point, gets his vision back, and then has a commission on his life, and we pick up here in verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste. And get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me, right? So this is Jesus speaking to Paul years ago and now Paul is relaying that to all these people who are against him. Paul's like, well, why would it be so against me? I used to be one of them and I I was killing people and I was giving my approval when Stephen was dying And, and then Paul relates this last piece of information that Jesus says to him. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's when the wheels fall off. Now the, the group is in an in a uproar again, right? Paul, did you have to go there? Could you just left that part out? I mean, you had the crowd, right? Up until this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is, should not be allowed to live. Like, because he talked about how he is commissioned to the Gentiles, now we can't have this guy. Get, get rid of him. Now, this is a difficult passage, friends. Paul is sharing his testimony, his life before Christ, his, his conversion experience and what God calls him to. By the way, Paul's, Paul's testimony is recorded three times in the book of Acts, chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. Do you think it's important that we hear it? I think it's important that we hear it. A few things to note. God's grace reaches the most rebellious of people, right? Paul was the most rebellious of people, thinking that he was serving God while he was killing followers of Christ. In the midst of his lostness, God broke into Paul's life and changed him. God graciously confronted Paul and turned his world upside down. And not many of us in here are ever guilty of killing another Christian or persecuting Christians, I hope. But we would be in the same lostness, unable to find our way to God, and God broke into our lives and saved us and called us to himself, revealing himself to us, giving us faith and repentance to believe and to turn to Christ. And note too, Paul didn't hold back. Everything seemed to be going well until verse 21 when he mentioned the Gentiles. He had to mention it, right? And here's, here's the other truth. No amount of positive thinking or self-talk was gonna help Paul here through this high stress situation. It wasn't like he could just remove all the stressors from his life. He didn't need a new plan for his life, because God had given him a plan for his life, what he needed to do was be faithful to his calling. He needed to rest in God's promise. He needed to prioritize gospel unity, which is what he did. God's promise is that he will always be with us and that his spirit is our helper. And I think that is especially true when we are living faithfully, seeking to live faithfully to God's call on our lives, right? So, whatever stressful situation that you're navigating right now, remember God's call on your life. Remember that God gives you strength when you're weak. And by the way, uh, just a little bit down from here, we see verse 25, but when they had stretched, so the, the tribune again takes Paul, protects Paul in a sense, but wants to flog him so he can get more information on Paul, see what's really going on. Verse 25, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, Paul said but I am a citizen by birth, Paul Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth, verse 29. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him, right? So Paul knows the law, and he uses it to his advantage here. He appeals to the law, He's he's saved from the flogging, but friends, what I want you to hear is this. Remember that there is a higher call on your life. Even if the law doesn't protect you, God's call on your life supersedes any other call on your life. So we're to be faithful to our calling no matter what. Prioritize gospel unity. Rest in God's providence and be faithful to your calling. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for loving us. For this day, Lord, we say thank you. For this day, we, we give you praise. For this day, we worship you. For the hope that we have in Christ and in Christ alone, we say thank you. For his finished work on the cross and in the resurrection, we say thank you. For this church family, we say thank you. And we ask that you would move in marvelous ways today and tomorrow. For your glory, God, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Church, as we transition to a time of invitation and response, if you have questions about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you can know forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, come forward. We'd love to connect with you. If you have been through our membership process and you're ready to share with the church that you want to join our church please come we'd love to celebrate with that if they have questions about um, something going on in your life or just need prayer we're here to connect with you and to pray with you and to support you god is moving and he's moving in your life what is he moving you to do today would you stand and would you sing